thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison, or The Power of Flashback was one episode, which explored the endings of The Godfather Part Two, Sleepers, and that was then, this is now. With the all-access patron membership, you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the Chills at Will podcast logo, and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news you will get a shout-out on a future episode, too. With the VIP patron tier, which is $10 a month, you'll get access to all episodes, a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes, and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020. And it has been an absolute pleasure, 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell, Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Kochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks, 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Robert Jones Jr., with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Tommy Dean, Elizabeth Williamson, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, with Erica Wirth. So, so, so many cool people that I still need to interview that I still look forward to talking to. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 145 of the Chills of Will podcast. What a pleasure today to be joined by Vanessa B. And the biography is fairly short, but we will definitely fill in those gaps because incredible life and so much obviously comes through in the book. Vanessa A.B. is a consumer protection lawyer and essayist. Born in Cameroon, she grew up in France, England, and the United States. Vanessa holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Nevada and a law degree from Harvard. Now, is that University of Nevada or the University of Nevada? Oh, we just call it UNR. Okay. Um, so, but I do think it's the flagship, so it could be the University That's right. You used that term in the book. I was like, oh, cool. I like that. I like that. <laughs> and that's in the beautiful city of Reno, correct? Yes. All right. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. It's, you know, it's a little later on East Coast time, and, and thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. This is exciting. Your book comes out in five days? It, yeah, it does. What's that like? Yeah. What's 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 the 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 run up to that like? Oh my goodness! I think getting published in the fall is challenging because the summer is usually so quiet in publishing. Okay. Yeah, publishing usually really slows down in the summer, and okay. so there's a lot of waiting, and then um, after Labor Day weekend, things pick back up. But yeah. there's a lot of books and big hitters that come out in September so <laughs> you know I'm just sort of quietly waiting for my turn and I just want the book to go out it's been living in my head and in my computer for so long that I, I, I just bet. want to release <laughs> uh, 
Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I hope that you can, can enjoy it as much as possible. I'm sure it'll be a little bit crazy, but I'm, I'm guessing 95% fun. Do you plan on doing a tour or is there anything in, in, in DC, in, in Reno, in around that we should, that we should know about? Yeah, I do have a, a little tour. Unfortunately, I will not be making it to the West Coast okay. um, this year, but I have stops in Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, Atlanta, right. Ann Arbor, Minneapolis, um, Baltimore. Um, so it's a pretty a pretty robust tour and then a few virtual dates as well. Oh, nice. Oops, I forgot Chicago. Chicago, I'm also coming to you. (laughs) I forget about Chicago. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, Like I said, you know, the book called Homebound that comes out October 11th is, I mean, it's about your life. It's autobiography of sorts. I mean, what, how, you know, I know genre or or labeling is a big deal. I mean, is this a memoir, like for your publisher and such, is this a memoir or is this autobiography? How would you, how, how has it been labeled? Um, I think of it as a memoir. Um. Yeah, I the subtitle is Reflections of an Uprooted Daughter. And we phrase it that way because it is an unconventional memoir. So I think okay. we wanted to give the reader a sense of what they were getting, you know, that maybe it would be a little some of these chapters I think feel like standalone essays. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it is, it is unusually structured, but I think it's a memoir. Yeah, they definitely do feel like um, they could be their own entity. And that's, and that's a a compliment. You know, I don't, I don't see that as a negative thing for sure. They stand out like that. I love to know about, about, you know, childhood specifically with, with like reading and writing and words. Now is, is Iwondo the, is, is the culture group or the clan? What would be the, the language of your, of your parents, your, your, your mom, especially? Uh, so Iwondo is both the name yeah, of okay. the tribe and the language. That's right. It's used throughout the book. So I want, so it seems, you know, like your understanding, obviously throughout the years, kind of, you know, forward and backwards, but you know, when you're a kid, you understood it more, you would hear, you know, conversations between family members and you would, you would get the gist of it. You get some of it. I just love to know about like, I mean, was it French first? Was it, Iwondo first, you know, in, you know, uh, just kind of like uh, your relationship with language or languages, and especially with reading growing up. Uh, French was my first language. I moved to France as a baby. It's where I um, spoke my first word. I learned how to read in French. Um, so French exclusively. And my family, uh, Cameroon is actually technically bilingual. So the mm-hmm. west of the of the country is Anglo Anglophone and the majority of people are French speakers, but I come from the French speaking part. So there are really very few English speakers on anywhere in my family. And Iwondo, I would hear my mom speak it when I was little, I would recognize some phrases, uh, but I write a bit in the book about how a lot of that tribal language would be peppered with French and mm-hmm. so if you paid close attention, you could, mm-hmm. you know, kind of see where the conversation was going. Hmm. I wonder if, if anything, you know, not with the one or not being your, your main language or, you know, French is not one that you've, you wrote in, you write in now, but like, mm-hmm. is there anything in those languages that maybe kind of informs the way you write now? You know, I think of like, 
I think of an, some authors who sp who grew up speaking German. They use a lot of like compound words, you know, like in German. Like, is there anything specifically about those languages that uh, informs like your style, or your craft? I I think so. Yeah, actually, French, like a lot of the Romance language mm -hmm. languages, maybe all of them. I think you know. First of all, we use gender for a lot of inanimate objects. Right. And um, it's it's strange, but in some ways, it it gives it gives life. I I think of a lot mm -hmm. of objects as almost like their own creatures, and I think maybe that comes through in my writing. Yeah, I kind of humanize a lot of like land and okay. and and inanimate things. Mm. <laughs> so I think that that's influenced by the French. Other than that, I mean, I do notice that when I, the more I make an effort to read literature in French, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. more it kind of expands my vocabulary and my way of thinking when I write in English. Unfortunately, yeah. life is so busy that when I have time to read, I really do tend to go towards um, books written in English because it's sure. easier. <laughs> right, right, right. That's interesting. I, you know, as a, I'm a, you know, I grew up monolingual English, but, you know, Spanish speaker, learned it, teach it. And that's mm -hmm. interesting what you say. Like, I, I always feel like my vocabulary in English gets better teaching and learning Spanish. Is that yeah. French was your first language, but even going back to it, right? It, it expands, expands your language, right? Yeah, it expands your language. There are expressions that, mm -hmm. you know, don't have a direct translation, okay. but the spirit behind the expression, I think, might like spark some. Mm -hmm parallel in English um, or just sort of make you think of the world in a way that through a lens that that you otherwise wouldn't that yeah. that has been my experience right I not that you're an expert not that you're a, a, a linguist in French <laughs> or its history or etymologist but I'm just kind of thinking a lot I wonder you know I know like in Spanish for example just like in English there's a lot of you know with the idea of gendered you know Latinx Mm -hmm. right that actually plays in the latina or latino i wonder if there's something similar in french or a need for it uh there is i have seen it from afar you know i right. having not <laughs> lived in france in many years language is evolving conversations around race and gender are evolving but sure. i'm observing them from the united states yeah. i've definitely seen people not use an X, but sort of append letters to like gendered words to okay. make them more gender neutral. Huh. So, Very interesting. Yeah, Very interesting. that's happening there too. Um, what what were you reading as a kid? Were you into science fiction? Were you into you know fiction that was five six grade levels higher than maybe what you should have been reading? Like like uh, subject matter wise, what what was it that really interested you as a kid? Oh my gosh, I was a, a big reader. I, um, I started out with kind of children, children classics for French children. So a lot of the, um, like the grim fairy tales, I remember reading those. Okay. There's a series of books called Martine, where the name of, it's a little girl who goes on all these adventures, apparently without her parents. And there's just mm. dozens and dozens of these books. So I started out with those. Okay. And then I got into the 
R.L. Steins, which I guess were available in French. Uh, um, <laughs> how, how do you say how do you say goosebumps in French? Oh my goodness! Sorry, sorry. That is such a good question. <laughs> I forgot. Don't worry I forgot about it. what they were called. <laughs> um, and then I really got into. Oh my goodness! I actually. Oh, that's the name I I mentioned it in the book, but the famous five. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like an old series from the sixties, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but after my parents divorced, my mom was for three years dating someone who um yeah who had uh in his childhood home where we would like spend weekends sometimes he had a big coffer and with yeah with with some of his the books that he read as a child in the 50s and 60s and we'd go out there in the countryside and i would be so bored and then I found those books and I was like, all right, that's what I'm doing on weekends. So yeah. read a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> now, now help me with the pronunciation. Uh, Chair de poule, poule for, for goosebumps. Chair de poule. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what I meant. <laughs> that seems to have been the, the, the titles. According to Google, who knows? Huh. Um, I appreciate that. So like, I mean, obviously home is a huge part of the book it's part of the title it is the title and just you know the book starts off with with you like at the consulate i want to say yes yes. right in as many words basically saying you know who who are you where are you from you're french but where are you from originally Mm -hmm. and you talk a lot you know in in the later some of the later chapters of course about like i mean representation is too simplistic a term but i wonder about reading in french growing up and then, in, you know, teenage years when you came to the States and you, you know, London in between there, like, did you feel represented on the page? You know, I know it's, it's, uh, you hear a lot about, you know, seeing mirrors, you know, mirrors and mm-hmm. what you read. Did you, did you find those? Were you able to seek those out? How, how did kind of representation come into play with your reading? Not at all. Yeah. And of course, in the moment, it was just my normal. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It didn't know. It didn't occur to me that main characters could be black girls. Um, I yeah, I would read these books and and find some ways to relate to the to the main characters. But mm-hmm. uh, but I yeah, I just kind of assumed that it was on that the burden to relate was on me, the reader. Mm. I think the first time I saw myself in a book was in England. I um so when we moved to England, I was um about I was almost eleven years old. It took me about a year to be comfortable enough to read at my at my than grade level mm-hmm. and um one of the first kind of more advanced books that i was able to get through was roll of thunder hear my cry Ooh. and i i picked it up because there was a little black girl on the cover mm. and i was like whoa <laughs> what's that mm-hmm. about mm. and i i remember really liking the book and i think it's a series so then i found the second book um so that's one that really stands out to me then sort of not very much 
after that growing up you know i got into like harry potter where like yeah. i think all the characters are white or or asian uh-huh. and then the next time that i really really saw myself in the book i was i think i want to say 26 years old and i heard about americana and in the first scene this nigerian girl goes to a hair salon and is getting her hair braided by an African woman. (laughs) And the experience she described was an experience that like, that like, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of black girls Mm -hmm. and specifically African girls have had in their lives. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Like that experience is so banal to me, but like, Mm -hmm. that's interesting to people. We were allowed to, we were allowed to write about that. <laughs> uh, and I think that was truly the first time in a really long time that I just saw myself in a book, you know? Yeah. And it was such a feeling. I was so moved by it. It actually, it actually encouraged me to to start writing and playing around with short stories and wow. just to see what it was like to write myself into things, you know? Wow. Yeah, I'm so struck by you using the word a few minutes ago. You used the word burden, like you know, you felt like the burden was on you to to relate, mm-hmm. and, instead of vice versa. And that's, I mean, for you to say, oh, you know, you know, yeah, I think at 11 and then 26. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's I guess you yeah. laugh so you don't cry, huh? I mean, man, that's. I, mean, <laughs> I I don't I didn't have that issue, you know, as a white man. I didn't feel not represented, or mm-hmm. or that I could name the amount of times. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. As you got into high school, as you got into college, then, um, you know, what, what were you reading? Who were you reading? And I know, I mean, you, you didn't go, you didn't go into being a writer automatically. I mean, as far as your original career, you know, going to law school and such like, mm-hmm. but who, I mean, were you, I know in law school, you, and you, you, you detail very well in the book about the craziness of it, especially the first <laughs> yeah. year. Was it, is it L1 or 1L? 1L. 1L, right. But I mean, mm-hmm. did you get a chance to read for, for pleasure? Was that a thing? Like who, who were you um, reading? And, and, you know, I, I guess in the more contemporary times, like who are these writers who really just thrill you and you know, maybe you wish you would have known about when you were 10 or 14 or whatever. So I have to admit, I, in college, I sort of went through a reading desert. So I was reading a lot for class and I was a political science major. And then, uh, I'm to admit a French minor. It was like, Uh, yeah, a few easy A's. Get that A. Um, (laughs) So I would read, I would read for class, you know, as a French minor, it's obviously advanced French, advanced literature. So we're reading more complex uh, texts, but, you know, for me, it it was intentional, obviously, on the part of what, like, what the professors were assigning. But for me, it was like eating my vegetables. Hmm. Um, Nothing that stands up to me. Sure. And then my last year of college, I took this capstone class, like one of those classes that you had to take to graduate. Mm-hmm. It's outside of your major, okay. but it's basically like 
a cult, like an American culture course or something. Okay, I thought you could say a cult, but you say culture. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> like right. an American culture course. <laughs> and in that class, the professor assigned to us books that I would have never picked up myself. And actually, now that I look back, uh, in my English class assigned Kindred by Octavia Butler, that was the first time I ever read her. I was oh, swept away. That was through my professor. Um, but I still remember classes from, uh, sorry, books from that capstone class. Mm -hmm. Like we read Ceremony by this Native American writer yeah. whose name is, I want to say, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking out now. Um, we read like the spirit catches you when you fall down by Ooh, Anne Patiman, yeah. right? Just like things I did, <laughs> books yeah. I would have never found on my own. Yeah, and those stuck with me. And then I got to law school, which was craziness. And all I read in law school were like cases or whatever books our professors assigned. Um, law school is like all-encompassing right. and I wasn't even working that hard compared to other people <laughs> um but it's just hours and hours and hours yeah. of reading outside of class and like by the time I was done with that like I was not reading literature so I feel like I went through a just like a really dry period and it's only yeah. once I was done with that and I had my brain back that I mm. started reading again very slowly <laughs> I was going to say Silco, and it is, it is Leslie. Yes, Leslie Marmon Silco. Right. Yeah. I, wow, that book, book was from 1977. I didn't know it was that old. Yeah. Classics are classics, right? Yeah. Oh, I wonder then, you know, as you, I guess, kind of like the seeds for the book, and mm -hmm. I'm sure there are, I know there are many, 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 because there are so many, you know, literally different continents and, and all the different stories and all the chapters are chapters or, or essays are, you know, inspired by different time periods and such. But I wonder if there were any general seeds and more so, I guess, just about like, hey, you talked a little bit about that with Ameri Americana. Is that what you said it was? Mm -hmm. How that inspired you. But like, what made you what was the 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 eureka moment or moments where it's like, I can write really well and people enjoy it or I enjoy it or both like it's you know it's it's good I can maybe write a book or make a living off this like what what were some of those those benchmarks hmm. I never really pictured myself as someone who would write a book and to extent that to the extent that I did I thought it would be fiction okay you know I it never occurred to me that I had enough to say to write like a full nonfiction book hmm. um but so I think it was more matter of timing. Um, first of all, there was Hillbilly Elegy that came out. And <laughs> I obviously have a very different background from J.D. Vance, but mm. he's a person who, you know, grew up in poverty slash, you know, in a working class family and ended up at this elite law school mm. and just ended up in a very different place in terms of ideology than i did so yeah, i was he's uh he's 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 still going that way right he's he's on his own <laughs> and he's still going with the trajectory yeah yeah um <laughs> and he's still going yeah and i i was 
curious. I wanted to explore, I wanted to think through like how, how did it end up that way? Like, why did I turn out one way and he turned out another way? And uh, why do I think institutions played so much of a role in supporting me? And he seems to, you know, barely mention them in his book. Um, So we just have different worldviews. I wanted to explore that. And then the other thing that happened is, um, you know, (laughs) November, 2016, uh, Trump won and in DC, I don't know, DC is such a special place, (laughs) but one of the ways that it's very different from the rest of the country is that when people, first of all, it's very hard to turn off the politics. Like you can't really just Uh check out, you know, like I would be coming home from work and like the motorcade would prevent me from stopping you know from crossing the street uh, and the other thing is that each you know politicians whether in the white house or in congress they move into town with their staffers and so you you see people around mm-hmm. you know i remember going to my gym and seeing rick perry mm-hmm. like trying to sign up for membership and i was like what what the hell you know <laughs> you just can't get away from it it's everywhere does but he do a lot of cardio or what's his thing? Yeah. I I don't I don't know. I I, I wonder. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to ask. He seems more as a, as someone who would like lift for most yeah, of the session. Makes but, sense. Um <laughs> but yeah, I remember thinking like, okay, I'm in the city that feels like home. I love the apartment I live in. I found a neighborhood that feels great. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, this external factor uh could changed the way I feel about the place where I live um and yeah it just kind of triggered a lot of thoughts that I had around home and what it meant to me and Mm. the writing was really a way to explore and figure out what I thought yeah well you um you mentioned the JD Vance and I I had the pleasure to speak with with Nima Avashia she wrote another Appalachia Mm-hmm. And she talked about how her book was pretty much a direct response to his shenanigans as well. Uh, <laughs> so that was interesting. There was something earlier you said there's a connection that I see. You know, I see that you. I see your book. I see a lot of connections to to books that I know, but also you know it's also very individual and and, and specific mm-hmm. to your own story and to many stories. You know, I see a lot of great comparisons with like Nadia Wusso's memoir. Yeah, she wrote Aftershocks home right, that right? Home. Yeah. yes correct um and you know like, like i don't know, like jean jean guerrero her book is crux but you know just about that your book i mean your book has history and your book has like you know the like the the chapter about like hud and like mm-hmm. you know housing covenants washington dc and its history and obviously you know some histories of of neighborhoods in france and some of cameroon mm-hmm. etc that it's you know it's the psychologists would be excited to read you know things about the the psyche there's history, there's culture, all the above. So let's get to let's get to the good stuff, the 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 great stuff, and that's homebound. It's the title is in two is two words. Yeah. Is is homebound? Is that exactly what it means? Is you know that we'll talk about home, but how about mm-hmm. the bound part of it? Is there any is there any negativity to like maybe like feeling like you're like tethered to a home? I don't know. Uh-huh. I know. I mean, I didn't 
feel any kind of negative connotations mm. with that word. Um, I think, you know, it was kind of a play on words and that in one sense, this book is about um, places uh, and people that I am attached to mm. that feel like home to me that I feel bound to. Mm. And then there's the aspect of being bound towards home. Right. You know, and going back to a place that was once my home and the home of my ancestors, going back to so going back to Cameroon, going back to France mm-hmm. after having left those places. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I liked that it was both looking forward and backward. Mm-hmm. The So, I mean, the book is is pretty much broken into the, the different definitions of home. Mm-hmm. right of which there are what 12 13 more yeah something right. like that i took some liberties <laughs> yeah the first, the first definition is from the dictionary and the others i yeah <laughs> but, but yeah it's not like you read them and you're like what is this obviously i mean they make a lot of sense obviously and yeah like the first chapter first um i mean would you call them chapters yeah Chap- right call yeah. them chapters yeah. <laughs> the first chapter you know has like four mini definitions if you will so you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room, but um, so like we said, the first scene is at the consulate and the the security guard kind of, you know, where are you from? The chapter is called Layers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I understand to be, there's so many layers of like your, of who you are. Um, you know, one's place of residence is one of the definitions. A social unit formed by a family living together, a place of origin, one's own country. You know, I, I got to figure that was a pretty important moment, obviously being there at the consulate. Mm-hmm. and like what what went through your mind when that question was asked did you did all that go through your mind at once or was it kind of like something that you reflected on years later oh I think it's a question that I've had a lot of time to ruminate just because I've mm-hmm. gotten it so many times so okay. the getting it at the consulate was only like the latest instance mm-hmm. you write about kind of immediately after that um, a dream where you're summoned to please help is it Yaoundé Yaounde, and you know, kind of like your psyche is kind of telling you, you know, like you're gonna, you're going back this time. I, I promise, and you know, the trip never comes to to fruition, right? At least in mm-hmm. at least in the dream. You write about yearning as a kid for like for homes that were this absolute, like an absolute home. Page six is the Ishiguro quote. Yeah. Right. That's. I mean, it's about home. It's about reading. It's about empathy. How would you? How did that? His quote kind of play into it. Just the idea of like what that. Something about good writing is saying, hey, do you feel the same way I do? Like, how did that come into play? Ideas of empathy in writing this book? Because in many ways, you have a very singular story. But, um, you know, I guess just ideas of empathy and sympathy. Yeah, I mean, I. So I think to answer your question, I want to go back a little bit to the structure of the book, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, each chapter is is built around a definition of home. And it's really thematically organized mm-hmm. um, and to me that felt natural because in a conversation with someone I wouldn't <laughs> you know I think it's rare for us to just kind of start like spewing up our life story from a to z like birth mm-hmm. to present right instead a topic comes up and maybe you remember an anecdote and and then the conversation builds around the exchange of stories sure and so 
in some ways this and I and I I'm really earnest when I write that in the book that this you know here's me telling you this little story with the purpose of you know kind of making a larger point that falls outside of me and I hope that in reading it you will even if I can't physically be in the conversation with you the reader because I cannot be in two places at once but mm. that you still feel like we are exchanging stories and and that it is actually jogging your memory mm. uh with you know I, I guess I want to me this book is successful if the reader in with each chapter feels like they're in conversation with me mm. uh and are thinking up are thinking of parallel stories in their lives and wondering what home means to them and what it feels like to feel at home in a name or in their skin or in their childhood neighborhood. Um, And so I really loved that quote. I just felt like it really captured Mm -hmm. that, that, that goal. Yeah. Definitely. You write about how in, in your mother's Wando clan that like quote names, names set expectations. Mm -hmm. And there's the, like, the, the Vanessa and there's Elizabeth Vanessa Asai Billy yeah Asai Billy Billy yeah. yeah I remember there was that's the one. that's actually the kind of Anglo version of my name the real I, I thought so yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be pronounced Asai Billy but I think it's easier for people to say Asai Billy so I, I allow you. it <laughs> in in so 1992 you would have been maybe three or four years old yeah. And um, there was the meeting that was a, a quick one with your with your father, with biological father. Um, I wonder if you could give a little bit of background on the adoption. Yeah, um, I had a sort of unusual story. Um, my biological mother was in a relationship with my biological father. Um, my biological father was married to someone else. Um, and, uh, my mom became pregnant with me and kept, decided to keep me, um, and her older sister, um, was, had recent, had left Cameroon not that, not that long ago, um, for France and, and her older sister had gotten married to someone and that couple wanted to adopt a baby they initially were going to adopt a cousin of mine with the uh, approval of my cousin's mother. Then my cousin's mother changed her mind, Mm -hmm. but at the very last minute. (laughs) So my aunt and uncle were on their trip in Cameroon ready to do the paperwork for this other child that fell through. And at the time I was a few months old I mean, a lot of intrigue even, right? It's like, yeah. like out of a movie, like your, um, your, your father, your biological father was, he seemed to be like keen on everything and he knew a lot of people. Right. And so it's kind of like, they, they kept it from him. Right. Yeah, they well, did. Yeah. So my cousin's adoption fell through mm-hmm. and at the time my biological parents were not getting along. And so, so I don't know, it was sort of right time, right place. My, yeah biological mom proposed that um that I be adopted instead but 
yes, they did want to keep it from my biological father, who was at the time, um, you know, like a higher up in mm. Cameron's equivalent of the White House. Mm. Like a very ambitious, connected person right. and also someone who would have not, I think, allowed the adoption to Mm-hmm. Um, my the adoption of me to to take place um right. so so yeah it wow. was uh, very sneaky <laughs> and that's how I ended up in France and uh, in a in a later chapter you talk about um like the there was like at least two types of adoptions right I mean I said yeah is that, the, is that the same trip of the consulate that was the trip of the consulate right it was like yes. pl- like plenary versus I forget the other type simple yeah there's a simple adoption uh-huh. and there's a plenary adoption and the in in uh yeah in france and so the simple adoption means you have you basically keep all your parents your birth certificate mm-hmm. doesn't change um you are now the child of both your the parents on your birth certificate mm-hmm. and the parents who adopt you mm-hmm. um and then the plenary adoption, your my understanding is that your last name changes, okay. uh, your parents change on the paperwork. There's a loss of parental rights for your biological parents. Mm. Uh, and so I found out on that trip to the consulate that my parents had actually done a simple adoption, which is why I always had my own last name mm. and not theirs. Um, and as an adult, it made sense it's like oh yeah because the simple adoption is the faster one sure. you know and and my parents only had my adoptive parents only had a few weeks to make it work so right but I was still um you know I as a kid I had a strange relationship to my last name in part because I didn't mm-hmm. know the person who it belonged to mm-hmm. and also because I really loved my parents and I wanted to have their last name sure um so we could feel you know like a more uh cohesive unit yeah. and so it kind of raised a lot of feelings at the consulate to have that uh, history yeah. dug up yeah Well, you know, you, I mean, uh, your biological father and your adopted father, I mean, you don't, you don't paint them with one brush. They're not, you know, they're not just one, one dimensional figures, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, some communication issues for sure with your, you know, your adopted father mm-hmm. as the years went on, but they're also beautiful moments for sure that like, you know, you're right about him. It's just like, like he was born to be a father. I don't think those are the exact yeah. words you use. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But even like with your and with your your biological father, just about how he how he was just so inspired by by his own life, by his own upbringing, and just you know success was was an absolute must for him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so you, you get to, you get to know him, you get to know his motivations. You know, like I say, he's not just a one one dimensional figure. Um, so rural France for a couple of years sounds like kind of an idyllic uh, countryside, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. Uh, I lived in a very, very small village from the age of, from about six to nine years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And definitely not my first foray. I mean, my, 
so my adopted dad his parents live in a tiny village yeah you know that i used to go to every sunday uh-huh um but even then we lived in a small town and then from the age of 69 we lived in a very small idyllic just right. little beautiful rural village and then uh du duchere am i saying that right duchere la duchere uh, oh man <laughs> no, I, I think that with my romance background, I might be able to. No, nope, no. Okay. Again, you describe so well, like, I mean, moving from a rural, rural area to what we would call in the States, an inner city. I mean, is that fair to say, or is it more of a suburban? Inner city government projects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And just, you know, of course, ideas, like you talk about, like we talk about your story is very singular, but it's also universal. I mean, who, do, who hasn't had to fit in for different reasons or wanted to fit in, right. um, you know, and, and you, like I talk about you, you, you speculate with like seemingly like news articles or Wikipedia articles that are so well done to talk about, you know, like some of the unrest at the, at Duchere, like, and why it was that way. And, you know, strong, strong, what's the word? Strong arming tactics by the police to say the least. Okay. Right. And just, you know, your mom and how she, you know, used it to get you to a good school. Wasn't necessarily the place you wanted to live, but it was, you know, to get you to a good school and all that. Um, your time in France, your time at the international type school, the, the, the name is like internet, except for one letter different. Uh, right? Yeah, it's inter internet. And that's actually the word for boarding school. So like, to, yeah. you know, a place where you intern children. <laughs> right, right. Did you, I mean, you write about, for the most part, the good things. I mean, were there, was that overall like a positive experience, like the school itself? It actually really was. It is the two years I spent there were, mm -hmm. and I had an overall pretty happy childhood, even yeah. though it was unusual, but my two years at the boarding school are some of my favorite uh, childhood years. You know, I, um, I was very independent. So I kind of learned to live away from my parents for a while. Uh -huh. um, I, you know, even though as your listeners will find out if they pick up the book. I have a lot of biological siblings, but I was raised as an only child. Right. And at the boarding school, I got to live with my friends mm. and I got to have siblings during the week. Sure. Um, it was, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. The, the move to Nevada um, was mainly for family. You talk about more family connections. Is that, is it, yeah. how, how would you, how would you kind of, what what was the main reason for that move? Um, yeah, my mom and I had been living in England. Um and England, yeah. Yeah. So we moved from the southeast of France to England and we lived in England for three years. And I you know, we were fairly happy in London, but we mm -hmm. didn't really have I mean, my mom had friends. She's social, she always has she always makes friends yeah. wherever we go. But we didn't you know, our closest family members were in France, in Cameroon. And then um, I have an aunt uh, and a cousin who were emotionally very close to us and lived in Spain while we lived in France. And those two moved to Reno, Nevada, when my aunt married someone who okay. lived here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, we followed family, you know. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. The... Am I correct that the the praise tab tabernacle was in London or yes, England? That was okay. in London. And I had to change change the name of the church because uh -huh. apparently 
<laughs> England is very uh yeah, their laws are intense. Oh, okay, yeah. Even though well, it's all true. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean a lot of a lot of what comes through in the London part is, you know, is you know, again, looking for home, looking for community. Um, there sounds like there were just a few Cameroonians, but other others other Africans. Yeah. Um, right. Big but African but a lot of church. like yeah. So I guess I was just wondering like with with your mom, like how much do you feel like her and, and you definitely became part of the church or churches in there in Nevada. How much of it was was a real I mean, this is a very personal question, not that you can even answer for your mom, but like I guess just like how much of joining was like for the community? Mm-hmm. you know i mean versus like religion religion i think it goes hand in hand mm. i don't know that we can really separate the two i mean my my mom was definitely intentionally you know looking for a church and sure. growing spiritually so that was very intentional but then in terms of where you choose to spend your time every week you know i think the big african church made it easy because Uh, it was francophone so Mm. there were people there who (laughs) we could actually communicate with and then because the church was comprised of immigrants you know I think it was just really easy for people to relate to us to you Mm. know many of them had been where we were Um, and I think I even write about how like the pastor had navigated the immigration system himself so you know people had a clue of how to like go through the bureaucracy. So um, it was definitely a combination of the two. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, Nevada, you know, the again, I, I obviously ideas of home and Nevada, Reno, Nevada. You uh you tell you talk about Lucky Lane, which is really interesting. <laughs> you know, you give a little history of like even like um like I don't know, federally subsidized housing, that kind of thing. But you just couldn't you couldn't you could, you know, such a an iconic story, I guess, between these two girls who had the same group of friends, but they weren't really friends. They wouldn't talk at the bus stop. They'd stand, you know, 10 feet apart and you'd go talk to one, go talk to the other. And you were just like, what the heck? Like, isn't <laughs> isn't any housing temporary? But it, it turns out, am I oversimplifying it? That basically it was like, well, one of them lives in like the trailer park. Yeah. And it's kind of like, she's kind of shunned. Yeah. Like I told you, I think before we started recording, like I always want to get into the 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 writer's eyes especially when you come into a whole new place a whole new country and i always feel like i want to know more and that's maybe selfish but like you you do such a great job of just letting you like what it's like you know looking at the yearbooks for your new school in reno and just you know oh football's big and you know the idea of like the the loyalty <laughs> to your high school football you know that kind of stuff but i it just makes so much sense you're just like isn't any housing temporary i mean especially with your person you know background but like so what, you know, what, yeah. what, how did that hit you that, that like, it was because of a trailer park and was that just like outside of your, your cognition? I mean, it, yeah, it was really, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that there were negative associations until like, like mm-hmm. started decoding how the kids were talking about it, you know, and I don't even know. Also, like the context is that this is the early aughts, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's been a lot of like evolution around how to even like huh. talk about other people and how to talk about class, I, you know, but um, yeah, so like people would talk about white trash and, mm. and 
and trailers and like I that had to be explained to me or I had to mm. kind of put it together from context that people had just absorbed you know probably from adults and from sure. tv and and things in the culture um and then I was sort of like oh my gosh like Vanessa you're so naive like mm-hmm. you wanted to live in the little trailers like you thought they were <laughs> cute <laughs> you know like thank god you didn't say it out loud like what would have people said and obviously now as an adult I mean I don't I don't care I think people should should get to live where they want to live as yeah. long as it's like safe and comfortable and affordable but yeah I guess at the time I was just really clueless <laughs> had you seen the movie clueless before <laughs> <laughs> I had actually I think <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that I don't know how how much that sums up America correctly or whatever, but... <laughs> you know around that time you you talk with your father on the phone with your biological father it was mm-hmm. it was mainly it was mainly a monologue is that safe to say yeah on his, on his side <laughs> yes yeah um and you know uh but but at least you know he's able to he tells you a little about his history about you know his background um i'm not exactly sure on the chronology but f- fairly soon after maybe there was that your your mother had gone to see her to back to cameroon to see her her, her brother had passed away yeah a little brother and you know, unfortunately, and I know it's been many years, but I'm I'm so sorry for your loss. Was that you know your that your your father as well had passed away? Mm-hmm. You end that chapter quote with him gone. Perhaps I could finally stop searching for myself in him. Mm-hmm. That's not to say you were happy, and by any means, you you talk about of course not. I wonder what um, him passing away, I guess, taught you about yourself. Um, I not too narrow. <laughs> No, that's a good question. I mean, in the immediate, like at the time, it didn't teach me much. It just felt unfair. Like I wanted closure and I didn't get closure. And I should say, you know, I I write this chapter a lot from my perspective as, you know, a 15 or 16 year old. Okay. Looking back as an adult, it kind of makes sense to me that this person would be sick that he would know he was not doing well Mm. and that he would get a chance to talk to me and that he would monologue at me because he Mm. had so much to share, right? So little time, so much to share. So maybe there was some of that at play, but in, in the moment I didn't feel like I, I learned anything looking back now, you know, um, 15, 20 years later, I, I feel like I, um, knowing that this person was never going to like swoop in and save me like this is a person who was you know financially wealthy mm-hmm. but because he was never in my life and because he passed away I just never expected anything from him right. and in some ways I think I don't know that is something I guess I have in common with him in that he and I are both a little bit gritty and driven and I was like all right yeah like you're on you're on your own you know um uh and later I meet some of his children and including one of my sisters who is a really Maggie who's a really sweet person but she talks about you know having had a hard year I think I put that in the book and she Mm. she says you know like her yeah, like her dad would have swept in. <laughs> like her dad yeah. would have intervened, you know? Uh, and in some ways, I guess I'm kind of grateful that I never had that hope 
Mm. Because now I don't miss it. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's so relatable as much as possible for someone who's not lost, you know, a father, but like, you're just like, it's just not fair at the time, right? It's not fair. I'm way too young for this to happen. Like there needs to be, there needs to be more time, more time. And, you know, the ideas of like, just like wasted potential or, you know, a future, right? Yeah. And knowing that you're not going to have a chance to reconcile, to make Mm -hmm. it right. If you don't get a happy ending, you know, you just get what you get. Yeah. Harvest Fellowship was your was your church in in Reno. Yes. And there was a community for sure that was a bond. It was it's where you met your boyfriend, your future husband, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And he seemed you don't you don't give him a name, do you? No. Okay. <laughs> no name. Okay. Um <laughs> but he seems like perfect, right? I mean he's he's God fearing, he's not he's not domineering. Um yeah. Right. He, he, he loves you. Uh, yeah. Okay, you know, right? I, it, it's hard to write about exes, but I tried to be fair. You yeah. know, I do remember him as a very kind person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just so interested in, you know, I mean, this, this time you write about, you're definitely, you know, maybe six or seven years younger than I am, but you know, the, the Obama years, I mean, to talk about that, like it's history it wasn't that long ago, but just like, <laughs> You know, just those times that, you know, 2012, 2010, you write about 2008 when he was running. And um, I mean, <laughs> I I knew exactly who, the, the kind of guy you were talking about. You're talking about one of the, I guess, one of the people at the church, maybe in the pastor. And he basically. I, I think it was my then boyfriend's stepdad. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, the whole Obama, uh, excuse me, Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I mean, those are the people that became the pastor, Greg, Greg Laurie, not Greg Laurie, but the thing of this guy in Tennessee. Right. I mean, these are the people that were in like, I don't know, I want to go that far, but these are the people who are uh, a lot of them are Trumpsters. And a lot of them are, you know, like you talk about, like, see, you know, Obama was the the, the Antichrist. He was Satan. And just this idea of like really emphasizing that middle name. I mean, I know I remember so many people doing that, right? Yeah. Was was that like, was that an immediate like, oh my gosh? Or was that like a slow developing thing? Like over the years, just this idea of, you know, as you, as you got to Harvard later on, like, you know, the libs, I think you you probably gave him that. Did, did yeah. your husband give him that nickname or you or you did? No, no, it was me and, and my best best friend at the time who I think would describe herself as a lib. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But just this this idea of like, these are in many ways, these are loving, loving people. They bring you community. Mm-hmm. But these are also the people who, you know, later on, you you write about so well, you talk about kind of like a, a quote, stunted empathy. Yeah, I, I'm sure you don't want to. I don't want to paint them all again <laughs> with one brush. But just but just I guess where not that there was a hole that needed to be filled, I guess. But what was it about that community that really drew you in? First, I was really just following my parents. But actually, at some point, my parents moved to a different church and I made uh, the choice proactively to stay at that church because uh-huh. I liked the youth group and I um, I was kind of embedded in it. You know, I was um, friends with some of the teenagers that went mm-hmm. to that church. I liked a lot of the adults, the youth pastor I really, really liked. Mm-hmm. Um and then my boyfriend was a member of that church. So at some point, you know, it's like the more ties you have to the community, the more friendships 
you mm-hmm. have there, I think the harder it is to leave. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Came in, you know, uh, a fairly young wedding, maybe early 20s. Uh, you yeah, were... I was exactly 20. Yeah. And, you know, also, I mean, throughout these years, not like it was just a one-time thing, but, you know, you got a lot more silence on from your from your adopted father in France, right? Yeah. During that time, we, you know, yeah, basically from the moment I moved to the United States, uh-huh. that relationship really, um, there wasn't a big fight or anything like that. He just kind of yeah disappeared and it was mostly on him to call me because at mm-hmm. the time, I, you know, you you had cell phones, but you couldn't make international calls. It was just like a whole to-do to make yeah. international calls. So I really, truly think it was much easier for the adults to figure it out. And my yeah. dad just stopped calling. And that was a decade that we didn't really talk. So like kind of from the age of, I want to say, 13 to 23. Mm-hmm. So You know, so you ended up you ended up moving closer to him. I mean, to the East Coast, to Harvard. I think some people may have heard of that school. It's decent school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you really become friends with Gabby, the one you talk about. Were you, were you? I guess were you like actively taught when you were younger to like that? Like you know, liberals were like satanic and horrible, or was it more just kind of like they were unknown to you? Was it an active like distrust and you know dislike? Or was it kind of like you just feel like you weren't as exposed exposed to as many? No, because I had liberal friends in high school. Sure. You know, my I didn't go to a Christian high school. I went to a secular high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was around a lot of teenagers who were either apolitical. Some of them yeah. were a little more, you know, uh, woke and mm-hmm. already kind of knew where they stood and good for them. Mm. So no, that I think it was more... More from, uh, from your husband's side of it? No, it's no. obsessive. So we would, at home, you know, we watch Fox News, listen to Christian radio. Mm-hmm. And I think there was definitely, like, in those contexts, you know, it would come, it did come up, like, fairly regularly that, like, okay, well, people who are liberal and tend to hold these views believe in these things that we think don't, you know, like, contradict the mm. values that are in the Bible that mm. is like the, at the foundation of our religion. It's funny, like I look at it, I don't think it was mean spirited or anything. It was just like uh-huh. the values don't align, you know? Right. right. And that's that. And so, but it's funny, I still had liberal friends. I was just sure. like, I have liberal friends, but like my own views are they're this and that's, it is mm. what it is, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's no, there's no painting, you know, of your husband is a horrible person, you know, not at all. But I mean, you, you begin to grow apart. Mm-hmm. You know, he, I guess he, he felt out of place, he, you know, kind of like, you know, definitely uh, kind of a little bit castigating about, you know, kind of being you being out of God's eyes or that kind of thing, or, you know, going to parties. And eventually so much, you know, that your, your friend Gabby was just like, well, what did, what do you want? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Just, you know, just ideas of what, of what you wanted. And like, I mean, that, that, that counseling scene, whoa. Yeah. Right. Like ways to save it. Did, <laughs> <laughs> I guess just the question just about kind of like your, 
how much you felt like you had to to continue with it versus you were just like this is not happening and again nothing necessarily evil about him it just wasn't what you wanted oh about the marriage yeah yeah I mean I I was so it's I don't know like by age 20 I had lived a lot of life Mm. and I think I was kind of overconfident in (laughs) Mm. I thought I knew what I wanted and Mm. then yeah I moved to a place where that just kind of opened up my world you know Mm -hmm. exposed me to more people and whereas he definitely knew who he was I thought I knew who I was and I I don't quite think I did I had a lot of growth to do but he knew who he was and the person he was was you know like um kind of incompatible with the person that I thought I wanted to be, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that I would be changing at all and potentially dr- changing drastically. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't think he was really willing to go on that journey. And, and I wasn't either, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be. Yeah. I, I had the sense that if I stayed with him, I would not get to experience the things I wanted to experience. I would not get to grow. Um, that I would be made to feel guilty about wanting new experiences. Um, and also generally, you know, I <laughs> married my first boyfriend. Mm. And like that works out for some people, but mm. I don't know. I think I realized that I, I locked it down too soon. <laughs> <laughs> the the end of that, it's an epilogue. The end of that chapter is, um, quote, but the image of an even evangelical flock I once upheld is gone. I think of Harvest Fellowship, Living Stones, and the millions of churches like them and see a people with stunted empathy, a people that claims the moral high ground, but is petrified in dogma, unable or perhaps unwilling to consider why their ministry's core principles sound so cruel when spoken out loud. Mm-hmm. Unquote. Petrified in dogma. That's, I mean, just, I'll just leave those words there. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's some incredible writing. That's some just craft wise. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, some of the, the, the chapters after, I mean, there's, there's the move to DC getting in with, with HUD housing and urban development. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you do such a great job with like the government history, uh, grant circle, you know, white flight, basically gentrification, you know, the housing crisis and how that affected your, your mom and stepdad. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, and then with you buying the condo and, you know, finding that, that right neighborhood that fits you what in what you wanted what did the in a book about home what did the condo ownership mean for you oh gosh that condo meant so much to me um emotionally i mean it was frightening buying it and i tried to capture some of these feelings oh, in yeah. the book because <laughs> it was such a big purchase for me and i didn't have a huge safety net um at the same time, it's really the first place where I got to live, you know, truly by myself as an yeah. adult. It was yeah. the first place that was mine. And hmm, it was really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I truly felt like an adult there. Mm-hmm. And then, but then, you know, I worked at HUD. I'm clearly someone who cares about housing and history and discrimination so you know I had to kind of balance the 
pride that I felt in having that condo and and having that little yeah piece of land you know that was mine and like balancing that with the fact that I was in a fast gentrifying neighborhood Mm. um surrounded by neighbors who were uh a lot of newcomers in my building who weren't always very tolerant of the black people who had been in the neighborhood for much longer than them Mm. and yeah in the book I wanted to reckon with that you know I wanted to be very honest about my role and I think as a black person it's uh you know gentrifying is a complex topic and I'm not an academic and there are people like Duncan Kennedy and others who have written about it in like these really sophisticated ways um but I think it's important to (laughs) not like give myself a pass as a black person I think it's Mm. very easy to like draw lines but in DC in a place where there are so many high paying jobs Mm. um you that means you have diverse gentrifiers you know and you can't assume that things break down neatly along color lines and I wanted to like own my part in the kind of cycle so in short I loved my condo um, but also I had a complicated relationship with it because I sort of understood what it meant for my neighbors for the city well yeah really strong image of like some of the effect that in the chapter something like you know hope i hope that grandmother outlasts us all or something like that mm-hmm. right the one who'd seen so many changes throughout yeah. uh, been there for been there for a minute yeah um and the chapters you know I mean, home in so many different ways home in home in the body right home in home is a safe space um alec weck brought us back to the janet jackson the the, the iconic video <laughs> yeah right and uh Alec Weck was, you know, she was all over the place, like you talked about, and she was, you know, she's an African model who who really made it big. And you know, you, in that chapter, you write about in France, going back, you know, where are you from, and and you know, sometimes subtle and sometimes overt, you know, anti-blackness, mm-hmm. and just what Alec Weck meant to you. So it ended up being another Alec that you'd seen, like what, like in a restaurant or something like that. Yeah. In the restaurant in Brooklyn, but you know, yeah, but just with that, with that, that one interaction, you just, you know, just goes into like more of like the background in France and and your personal history, as mm-hmm. well as you know what she meant to you, um, you know, and then I think it's the same chapter, but you know, ideas of like scientific quote unquote quote unquote scientific studies that you know supposedly you know people of African descent are imperceptible to pain. And you write, uh, right. You write about hair and like suffering to be beautiful and, and ideas of black is beautiful, but then also, you know, a lot of like the whitening, um, like creams and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. All this with a connection to Alec. I mean, that's, that's a heck of a chapter again, just on its own. That's, there's so much going on there. Um, I wonder if, I wonder how that one started. Was that one just about the interaction with, with the Alec Weck lookalike? And then it became so much more like, what were you trying to do with that particular essay? Yeah. uh, That one really did start with Alec. You know, I was so taken aback by my reaction to Mm. running into her on the street. 
you know, in part because I am not really one to like fangirl over celebrities. Mm -hmm. So I was like, why am I having all these feelings? And it really took me back to being a little girl in France. And like I write about not not seeing a lot of people who looked like her and who are so confident in their skin. Mm. And then, and then that kind of pushed me to think about, yeah. And then from there, you know, I was thinking a lot about what it felt like to want to be white, where I think that came from Mm. the extent to which, um, yeah, and, and then I, I talk a lot about, um, like, the lengths that Black women and, like, little girls will mm-hmm. go to to, like, access white white whiteness, white features, the right. things we'll do to our hair, the things we'll do to our skin, and, like, the kind of pain that we will tolerate. And then oh. from there, I, like, I, I mean, <laughs> I've, that chapter initially appeared as an essay in Guernica magazine um, okay yeah a few years ago and a, a lot of my essays I I like that are like that you know I mm-hmm. I like to start in one place and then take it to somewhere yeah surprising and sometimes yeah. I surprise myself while writing you know because <laughs> you do research and you find something out and you're like oh maybe I can connect it yes. to this doc Yes. The dots were definitely connected. (laughs) Yeah. The, you know, there's so much going on and, you know, there's, there's definitely the, you know, the, like the trip back Cameroon, I again, home, you know, home in so many different ways and all the different definitions. One of the chapters is um, what, you know, without ruining the rest for the, for the people listening, but one of the next chapters is is home, like as a safe space. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it's, it shouldn't really be surprising anybody, but it's it's still stunning about, you know, yourself and about all, you know, friends, about so many women who just have so many stories of sexual harassment or worse. Right. And, you know, um, you know, with, with, you know, some of your own history that you talk about, I'm sorry that you've gone through that. Um, but there's, it's seen through like the lens of like this, like a, like a self-defense class. Right. Yeah. And you're screaming and you're screaming <laughs> and, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear, like the, you know, expelling all the negative as much as you can and just, ah, you know, and you talk about, you know, not taking up space as a woman and being, you know, forced, not forced slash taught to do that. I wonder just kind of overall, like, did you feel like this book was a scream? Was it a, was it a cathartic experience? Was it a, ah, like, it feels so good to get it out. What is it like to write about something about yourself? Obviously so personal, but so many intimate personal details and people yeah i am it it is very that's a great question was it It a scream was it a sigh you know what i mean was it a (laughs) sometimes it felt like a scream i mean i think (laughs) that particular chapter which uh you know is really centered around sexual harassment and sexual violence Mm -hmm. uh and its impact on me as a person and on my relationship to home that that chapter felt like a scream yeah. you know because I was revealing these kind of traumatic events and then sharing you know what I feel about it 
you know, because in some ways it is a very assertive chapter. Yeah. Uh, I have thoughts about why I think those things happened to me and what I think should happen for it to happen to fewer people. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The rest of the book, <laughs> I don't know, the rest of the book did not feel like a scream. <laughs> I was just like a whimper. Um, <laughs> a whimper. Other times I was like, uh, this is kind of a painful exercise. Why am I doing mm. this again? Um, but I think just to kind of step back a little bit, I, um, I'm one of the older, I'm, you know, I'm my, I am my maternal grandmother's oldest, uh, grandchild. Okay. And then there are many, many little cousins who come after me mm. and, oh, the eldest, Tell of the cousins, yeah. Yeah, and so um, I think with my life arc, I think even with some of them knowing my trajectory and knowing mm-hmm. that it wasn't always easy, I think it's it's easy to look at me and say, "Oh well, I don't think I don't think I can apply to Harvard because like I I don't know to kind of hold me up as like some special mm-hmm. um, I don't know example." you know so um well cousins applying to grad school and i'll be like well you should apply to columbia apply to harvard like apply to all these places and Mm. like let them offer you money let's see you don't know till you try and like well i can't get into harvard and it's like yes you can like i'm not special you know my story and in some ways i wanted to like write it down you know and be like i am i am actually very ordinary like the events (laughs) In the aggregate are unusual, but I am very ordinary. And that to me felt cathartic to just kind of mm. get that down on paper. Um, you know, be like, I've gotten bad grades. I have failed. I have made major mistakes. I have married people I shouldn't have married. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that part felt felt good. Well, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I know you've, I'm, I know you've gotten some feedback already, obviously, but, um, you know, the book comes out in five days from when recording this, it'll be the day that people are listening to this is October 11th and that'll be out. Um, obviously I, I can't wait to hear, I'm sure you can't wait to hear all the, all the feedback and the people you inspire, the people you say, yup, that's my story or, or that's nothing like my story, but here's what I got from it. This book's, you know, I know it's going to do really well. Congratulations. I'd love, you know, a couple of shout outs, shout out, um, you know, publishing company where, where we can buy it, where we should buy it and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Thank you very much to my publisher. Yeah. House. And uh, you can find Homebound everywhere books are sold. Although obviously support your independent local booksellers. They need you. You say so you said Astra House, right? Yes. Astra House is my publisher. Astra House is the publisher and social media. You're pretty easy to find. Yes, uh, if you look up Vanessa AB on Twitter is where I'm most active. Are you extremely online, as they say? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yes. I, mean, I, know, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, uh, I mean, great, good. Well, great for things like selling books like this that you know shouldn't need many recommendations. It's one of those, you know, word of mouth will we'll keep, you know, for sure selling them. And, and of course, we want to, encourage everyone listening to, to get a copy. It's, you know, the chapters themselves are, are, are standalone, but the book cohesive, cohesively comes together so well. Like I said, there's some history, there's some psychology, there's some, you know, whatever, cultural studies, uh, all the above. And she's not even what, 35, 40 years old yet. So 
besides <laughs> besides maybe a second memoir in a couple of years, any other projects you want to leave us with? Any other future projects? Or are you kind of just like, let me take a break? Oh my goodness. I'm just trying to get through the book tour and yeah, then yeah, yeah. I can start writing again. <laughs> there you go. Well, I want to, you know, thank you so much. It's awesome to talk to you when you're in the midst of uh, you know, a couple of days before this, this book drops and um, thanks for sharing it with the world. Thanks for uh, letting us get into your lab a little bit here and letting me talk to you. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Pete. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much and great luck in the future. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Again, a huge thank you to Vanessa B. And great luck with Homebound, which is out as of today. Continue good luck with her writing. And I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thank you for listening to episode 145 with Vanessa B. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel and podcast while you're checking out this episode. You can follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can also ask for the podcast by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. Remember, go to Patreon to check out the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon page and become a member today. And please share this information. Pass it on. If you like what you hear, tell one person. Tell three. Tell 20. The intro song for the Chills Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental. And the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 146 with Jonathan Escoffrey, the author of the Linked Story Collection, If I Survive You, a National Book Award nominee, a New York Times editor's choice, and an Indie National Books bestseller. If I Survive You has been named the best or most anticipated book by Entertainment Weekly, Oprah Daily, and elsewhere. This episode will air on October 18th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Vanessa B., whose work, like Homebound and Uprooted Daughter's Reflections on Belonging, gives you chills at will.